Hello, and welcome to Disrupting the Degree, the education marketing podcast. I'm Stephen Cleary from Carnival Content with Zeynep Fayez and Zeynep Fayez from The Brand Education. This podcast is all about higher education with industry trends, experts and practical ideas across the student experience, brand and marketing. In this episode of Disrupting the Degree, we're joined by Colette Lux, Executive Director of Communications and Marketing at UCL. Hi, Colette. Nice to have you on the podcast. It's an absolute pleasure to be here. So thank you very much for inviting me on. We really wanted to talk about brand and we'd really love to ask you a bit more about, you know, your career and your journey into higher education. Well, I suppose I don't have a classic higher education marketeer's degree in that I wasn't a sabbatical officer who stayed on, but I actually began my career in commercial world working for Unilever. And I spent about 10 years working in what's called fast moving consumer goods. So really working at the sharp end of brand building and marketing. And then at a certain point in my career, I did move into the public sector um, and went to the BBC. So I was very lucky when I was there working for John Burt, amongst many others, and got to do things such as the rebranding. So when the BBC moved to one logo, but also really fantastic campaigns such as Perfect Day. And I think it was that application of commercial thinking into the public sector was really what I learned in the BBC, was understanding that brands that people love, that impact everyone, but don't necessarily monetize, but the same thinking can really help you think about the same problems in a different way. And after the BBC, I did a number of different things, including having a couple of kids, and um, then went in to work for the Department for Education and from there into government agencies. So one of the skills agencies, the Sector Skills Council for Technology. And we were working quite a lot on employer-sponsored degrees when I was there. And I, it was a short hop from there to King's College London, where I had five very happy years, and from there to UCL. And I've been at UCL about three and a half years now. So a little bit of a long way round, but I would say that my approach, the way I think about marketing and building brands was definitely formed in those earlier years working at Unilever, but then refined very much through my experience at the BBC and really just translating those commercial concepts into something that can work in the public sector. I was going to say, do you think the commercial background has given you an advantage then in public sector? Yes, definitely. Because I I am one of those boring Unilever people who sits there and thinks there isn't a single day that doesn't (laughs) go by where I don't draw on something I learned there. I think the advantage of Unilever is it had a very structured approach to thinking about brands and marketing. So you've got a framework. The disadvantage is that in the public sector world, it's seen as jargon. So really, the skill is to understand that way of thinking in those frameworks but to use the language that your colleagues use. Mm -hmm. Because let's face it, people in higher education are super smart and they love different ways of thinking about things. So if you can bring those two ideas together, a structured approach to a problem, but without using the jargon, I generally find academics are really quite excited about that. Yeah. Yeah. So why does branding matter in higher education then? Well, an excellent question, because I think it does depend what you mean by branding. And often, I think, traditionally, people in higher education have just meant logos. And it isn't about that. You know, the old cliche is factories make products and people buy brands. Brands are really something that live in the mind. Mm -hmm. And Mm -hmm. it's about 
all those um, conscious and subconscious cues that you give to someone as to why they should choose your brand, your university. But more than that, the, what we're dealing with in higher education are brands and names which will live on people's CVs forever. Mm. And when they choose to come to your university, they're making a choice that particularly if they come from overseas, it is not an insignificant amount of money. It's not an insignificant amount of money generally, but it, it's a really important decision. Um, and, you know, it's I'm certainly not going to make comparisons to cars or this or that, but it is a brand that is going to define that person and they will take with them through their whole career. So I think giving some meaning to it and making it account for more than just the rankings is an important part of our role. Yeah. I think that's really important that you've touched on that. There is a huge psychology behind branding and association and what students or even academics would feel when aligned with a brand. It gives you a sort of purpose and you've really got to you know, really understand the stakeholder to be able to, to have them on board. Yeah, I mean, I think that's often... Well, it's a really important step in universities generally anyway, is you need to have robust thinking, robust arguments, but you do need to take the stakeholders with you. Mm -hmm. And I think if you don't go into those discussions with a well thought through argument, as I say, good frameworks to draw on, but not using the jargon, and you can't have a meaningful debate with the academics, you will lose them and they'll think they know more about it than you do. <laughs> and often this doesn't happen all the time, but often in UCL, I might say to them, you know, we make it look really easy, but actually it isn't easy. A lot of the branding work, the campaigns, the communication, it should feel very natural to the brand, what we're doing. You should yes. just look at it and think, hmm, that's right. Um, but the skill is, we, you know, we hold that behind the curtain, so to speak. We just make it look easy, but it isn't easy. And often I'll find that there are a few rogue colleagues will have gone off and think that they've done a kind of extension idea of some of the work we've done and you have to go back in and say actually you've changed the idea it doesn't work this doesn't work it doesn't carry the same meaning or the most common problem I find is we've told people what we want them to believe rather than given them a proposition for them to react to. Yeah mm. and also would you say branding and marketing are two separate entities or would you say it's an integration that both those things matter when it comes to branding? Well, both do, because if you go to a kind of theoretical level, of course, really good marketing is based on audience understanding and really mm -hmm. good brands are based on audience understanding. Because if you understand your target audience, you know how you're going to persuade them. Mm -hmm. In many ways, getting that brand communication right, I think is is harder and in Unilever terms would be the higher skill in a way but the marketing also can be much more sophisticated than often we do um, you know you can segment you've got to think about where you are in the application journey what their experience of the brand is before and I think having an element of analysis and structure in both areas can help I mean at UCL I'm very fortunate in that it's all within my department I do talk to colleagues in the UK and actually in Australia as well, whereas sometimes it's fragmented marketing from branding in different divisions. Mm -hmm. yes. And I can't imagine how hard that must be to bring things together. Yes. So I, I've previously worked in institutions where the marketing team was centralized with brand, but some of my clients 
that there's just so many different sections of marketing across like the faculties as well as centrally. Yeah, it, is, it becomes very difficult, even when it comes to managing social media, yeah. that if, if social media channels are, are managed by different individuals and different teams, uh, yeah, that's hard enough, yet alone marketing and branding being split up. They all have different thinking. And they're mm-hmm. all doing different things. And different goals. Yeah, different and different KPIs. goals. And so the messaging and the, the brand, I feel like it changes and mm-hmm. they adapt it to what they want it to be rather than a long-term vision of yeah. um, the institution. I was going to say, but the, the point is surely it, it, no one wants to close down academic freedom or freedom of expression. So mm-hmm. on no. one hand, you need to give that scope to your faculties, to the academics. And... But it is the common principles or, you know, you sometimes talk about brand DNA, the thing that makes UCL UCL rather than another highly reputable university in London. And there is something about it. And as I say, I I absolutely loved my time at King's, but it's very clear to me that King's and UCL are quite different as Mm -hmm. institutions. Their history is different. Yeah, their ranking's different, their size is different, the history is different. But the way they would approach something, so at UCL we'd always talk about we, and at King's, we would usually use serif script, usually refer back to alumni to appeal a bit more to the heritage of the place. And so it's a tonal difference. Yeah. And some of the stories that you might carry on your social channels or in your faculties would just feel and be different. And that's what I mean about it's, it is subtle, but it's quite skilled to get that right. And to do it with academics, which is why I find the industry so fascinating, because you've got these super smart people who get ideas and you all you can do is work with them and try and alight on the things that fit the brand and try and encourage them to express it in a way that just makes sense so that people gradually over time build up a whole picture of what that brand stands for. It's, it's that age-old thing where your brand is what your customers uh, say, not so much about what you as the organisation says. But I guess exactly. uh, what you're saying is yeah. in like getting everyone on board so that cohesive vision and mm-hmm. values actually comes through. How did you build UCL into a world leader then? How did you build your brand? Well, first of all, I have to say UCL is a world leader because of our incredible academics. Mm-hmm. So, Absolutely. you know, we already ranked globally top 10 and you know they do that on absolute pure genius and and the unique way that they approach things and argue about everything um (laughs) what my job was to really get the recognition for our world leading and I would say we are on the way we aren't always there I think I'd still like to improve our spontaneous and prompted brand awareness um but we're definitely on a journey so you're right look it was um It was very clear to me from my earliest days at UCL that when you talked to academics, they all knew what this sense was. And they were incredibly proud of UCL. And they, you know, as far as they were concerned, they weren't looking over their shoulder thinking about where might I go next? This was it. And the only other time in my career I've come across that sort of confidence and absolute love of an institution, to be frank with you, was the BBC. It was very similar. But there was just this sense about they kind of knew what made UCL UCL, but we hadn't being able to set it down in a way that marketeers could really use. So we did two pieces of work, first of all. One was we did a very extensive quantitative piece of brand tracking with Cantar Mill Brown. And we set up the first brand tracking exercise they've done. And again, as an approach, it's something that I did in Unilever. We did at the BBC all the time. It was the big brand tracker, which has got a robust model 
behind it. And what that did was it gave me enough data, UK, we took a European country and an Asian country to have comparison. The academics could play with it, break it, push it, and it was truly robust. The other thing that was very helpful about that quant model is it it proved what we thought, which is we don't haven't got the recognition, which our ranking really merits, but it showed that that whole approach with the brand power index based on saliency, difference of meaning, was something that other brands that they did value used. So on a lot of the brand tracking, they brought in comparisons with Apple or with Google. Mm-hmm. Oh, okay. As well as the other prestige universities, elite universities we put in there. And I think on some level, that gave them reassurance that this wasn't some crazy scheme that I'd come in with. This is what very (laughs) serious global brands were using. Did anyone think that initially, that it it was some crazy idea that you were coming with? If they did, no one said that to my face, but (laughs) it is possible. That's a very good answer. Sorry, I just realised that. It's just been cheeky, Colette. As you should be. I mean, that's exactly right. I, I think when you start, you have a little bit of latitude. To, and people are thinking, well, we hired for her for a reason and other people, you know, had hired her. Let's see what she can do. Mm-hmm. So I did yes. recognize that quite early I would need to come up with something that would allow people to see it. And I used to start off my discussions when I go through the, the tracking saying, look, brands do exist in people's mind, all that stuff. It's good. It's valued on a balance sheet as goodwill. Yes. Yeah. And then you start to say, and this, you know, it can sound like ephemeral, but let me take you through the study. And again, you didn't have to say it because some of the charts did show comparisons with Apple uh, and with Google. And you could see them thinking, ah, okay, yeah, maybe there's something here. <laughs> because you were able to show them, like, com- it's like evidence, physically show them well, it's something. Data, isn't yeah. It? yeah, like you yeah. were able to physically show them. Because I think um, there's always been this argument in HE that, you know, unless it's research or unless it's teaching they wouldn't invest in something like brand you know they always there's always this negative connotation towards brand in he so the fact that you were able to you know to speak to them and showcase something that isn't usually tangible i think mm. that's probably what's probably helped um yeah. do you I think agree. there's a negative connotation like yeah, yeah, well, yeah i suppose yeah, it depends yeah. there's a massive I, negative i guess it depends which institutions you talk to maybe it's because i work with a lot of post 92s the, I the think, feeling is I a think bit that's different. right. The post ninety twos are kind of more up for using borrowing commercial concepts to get get ahead. I think mm-hmm. as we're really being at the sort of the top end of the Russell Group, it was like, well, we don't need to do this. People just come to us. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yes. You know. Yeah. There's a little bit of that. And the other part is we did do a qualitative um, conceptual piece of work with prospective students, current students and staff. And we found funny things whereby some members of staff would have certain points of view about what they thought students would feel. And then we'd check it with the students and that might be different. To be be honest with you, I didn't overshare that because I felt that we needed to do that work, get to the result and then test the result with them Mm -hmm. because... Otherwise, they'd sort of sink into the wordsmithing, which wasn't what the concepts were about. You know, when you You start getting defensive, then. Yeah. And you would go down something that wasn't relevant. So we did come up with a proposition. I spent a lot of time explaining to people that proposition wasn't a tagline. But in the end, the only way you get past that is you have to move quite quickly from the conceptual work proposition to briefing some creative. And then Mm -hmm. when they got fantastic creative that they want to look at it and say, Huh. And see yes, something that's tangible. Us. 
That's yeah. who yes. we are. Like, that feels right. And they don't, almost don't need to know how you got there. And that's what I mean about sometimes I think we make it look quite easy. But the thinking and the rigor and the strategic rigor behind it, to me, is very important because of the way that I approach branding and marketing. But I also know that academics aren't, certainly at my institution, aren't used to seeing that. So if you can get to a creative execution, as we did with sort of disruptive discoveries or made at UCL, what you want is them to look at it and almost go, Yes, that's us. Yes. And to my complete surprise, one of the taglines, we had disruptive thinking since 1826, which of course was one of those taglines that was born with frustration from the client on a train going mm-hmm. somewhere saying, oh, just do use this because you've got to get it up on Monday. It's, the, to me, one <laughs> of the, the best ones. Exactly, isn't it? It's like, oh, just try that and we'll see what happens. Um, it worked. <laughs> it did. But then well, gradually I found academics would say, well, the thing is we're disruptive thinkers. And I was thinking, yeah. oh, my goodness. Yeah. Yeah. If they're choosing to use that language and they're choosing to self-identify, to me that was success mm-hmm. yes. internally. Yeah. That, it, that we somehow got there. And if I'd had them wordsmithing concepts, we would yeah. never have got there. And it's great that you brought on all of the stakeholders you heard from the students, the academics and everybody involved. Do you think that you can end up with too many cooks though and end up without being able to make that decision? So are you ever under, put under pressure for getting buy-in from everyone before mm. a concept is approved? Well, that depends how you work, I guess. So from my point of view, doing the market research, I used people who I had used in Unilever, who Mm -hmm. I knew really understood branding. And so whilst we did the qual group and we got loads of input, I worked with a researcher who actually I'd been in Unilever with, who I knew really understood how to pick through the research and come up with a proposition. I worked with a fantastic design house. Um, So I think it is, there's no no way to do this other than work with people who are very skilled in understanding brands. Mm -hmm. I didn't check the proposition. I just went ahead and briefed it, got to creative work, and then pretty much said, we should go with this. It's fantastic. We briefed it. And certainly the first hoardings that we did down at UCL East, of course, a couple Mm -hmm. of academics said, it's too complicated. No one will ever understand it. You've gone too far. (laughs) At which point it was going up around 34 acres down at the former Olympic Parkway. And I was thinking, okay, but I, not much we can do now. But the thing is, if if you, I always say, if if you don't have anyone complain, you're not pushing the boundaries enough. Yes. Well, (laughs) and as it happened, I was just incredibly lucky that some, one of my team was down there checking, you know, it had all gone up perfectly. And she sent me a picture of groups of school children standing around the hoarding. She said within 30 minutes, she'd seen six groups of school kids stand around the hoardings discussing them with their teacher. And it was a kind of once in career moment. So I did take that photograph, fine said academic and said, that's interesting. You know, it doesn't always happen that way, but it did happen that way. And and to an extent, you know, we can always think that people aren't up for decoding a bit of advertising, which is effectively what the hoardings were. But I think if it's interesting enough, and again, these are kind of your fundamental principles on good advertising and marketing, you want to make people curious and engaged, particularly if you're a university. I mean, I always use the comparison like The Economist. We all remember The Economist advertising because it engaged us. It made us curious to try and un you know, solve the puzzle they were putting in front of us. Have you had to have that difficult conversation where you explain that actually you're not the target audience? (laughs) Well, and you know, I haven't really thought this through, but I do think the reason 
why marketing has not been forced into using a lot of this commercial thinking previously is we were just talking to ourselves. Mm-hmm. Yes. Before there were the stretching targets of widening participation or talking to adult or mature learners, we kind of all knew how to talk to 18-year-old versions of ourselves. So you didn't really have to think about that. But you're exactly right, Stephen, that we aren't always the target audience. And we're certainly not if we go to some emerging economies globally. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, that's a great point. UCL is one of our favourite brands, actually. Whenever we're making a comparison to something we really like, we really look up to it. If you, if you feel, dis- if you want to disrupt something mm-hmm. or if you want to be in a disruptive industry and you want to become a disruptor, then you could go to UCL, right? Because that's mm-hmm. what you're trying to promote. And mm. that's what your tagline is saying. So I think there's an association um, that you've now started to build. Well, that, that's very kind of you. I do have those moments where sometimes the academics say, well, we disrupted things. I'm thinking, oh my goodness, <laughs> what have we done? <laughs> Please, not disruptive on everything. What, what have you started? <laughs> yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> what sectors outside of HE do you seek inspiration from to build your brand? I am very interested in how the publishers like The Economist, The Sunday Times are taking their brands online and what they do to engage. And if you look at the relationship with some of the famous columnists, for example, in The Sunday Times with The Sunday Times and The Paywall, you realize that The the Sunday Times brand has to work really hard Mm -hmm. to attract Mm -hmm. users to them and then to, um, you know, the Indianites and so on. I also think the tech brands are incredibly interesting because they are, uh, they're living and breathing. So when I worked in Unilever for a brand like Flora or, you know, Heinz, you, it was constant. You could control the brand. What I learned in the BBC is you can't control a brand that is about the people. And that's true for higher education. And for me, what I see happening on the Facebooks, the Instagrams, Twitter and so on, these are brand names and you sort of know what you're getting but it is uncontrollable because they rest on the people within them. And mm-hmm. what we're seeing at the moment is to what extent they're going to curate the content or not. Um, uh, and I think that's quite interesting. Have you watched The Social Dilemma on Netflix? Oh, yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean... Just talking about controlling <laughs> how much... Yeah. <laughs> uh, and not so far from a lot of higher education, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, you know, no, it, no, it, it, is, it is super tricky because... they. They're sort of, I want to say the brain end of it. I don't know if I mean that, but it's not a a commodity, certainly not a commodity. It is a high value investment people are making, Mm -hmm. choosing Mm -hmm. to come to your institution. The money, but as I say, it's a brand that's going to live on the CV. So that's a real responsibility that you don't want your institution to do something foolish Mm -hmm. um, and and destroy that goodwill, really. Mm -hmm. What advice would you give to senior leaders in higher education who aspire to create a world leading brand? I think even though we have very challenging and very smart colleagues, you do have to be brave and you do have to be different and encourage them to take a bit of a risk with a brand, to stand for something rather Mm -hmm. than to stand Stand for nothing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, the other thing, and I often have this conversation with colleagues from the commercial world who are thinking of coming into the public sector, and I think we just have to accept we have influence, we don't have power. Mm-hmm. So you have to use it. So a, a lot of my time is working with academics and I love the intellectual challenge that comes with that. And if you're not up for that and you want to go into a room, snap your fingers and everyone just to accept what you're saying, then this probably isn't the right industry. Mm-hmm. Definitely not. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I know. And even in a brand like UCL, I, I 
spent quite a lot of time with my department trying to get them to think like the underdog, mm-hmm. to have you know, a competitor, a competitive set, something that you want to beat, because that usually brings people together. And then you think more competitively and think, well, how do we need to stand up? You know, am I talking to a very talented student who has got the choice between us and Durham, between us and Imperial, between us and Bristol? Why should they choose us? Oh, well, they'll always choose us. We'll always have enough students. Yeah, but what if we don't? Let's mm-hmm. look at some data. Maybe we are losing some of our first choice students. Maybe. And so almost forcing that thinking to get the creative juices going, to get that sense of pride going. And then that is what you can build on. It makes it a lot more exciting working in higher education marketing if you do have that competitive yes. side. I mean, mm-hmm. I, I worked at lower tier universities, so we had no choice, mm, but mm. it was always far more exciting to do something really out there and actually see it work. Yeah, I, I, I mean, I'm. I mean, let's be honest. Sometimes we used to go around the UCAS fair, and you could almost change the brand names on some of the posters and some of the material. Or it was different for the sake of being different, but it wasn't grounded in what was meaningful to that what that institution stood for. Mm-hmm. And um, I think that's what I mean about it. it is quite skilled to get that tone right. What are the images? What's the angle? What are you choosing to depict? Mm-hmm. Yeah. All of that really needs thinking through. Yeah, absolutely. Because otherwise, it's just it's just another logo. That's what it becomes. Yeah. Exactly. Well, I always say with my clients when it comes to videos, if you change your logo at the end, you could be any university. So what are you actually going to do that really does mean something? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I agree. And and make it memorable. Yeah, it's got to really have be different, but it's got to be relevant to the brand and you've got to make it as memorable as you can. So overall, I would say that the most exciting thing about being in higher education is it is a global industry. It really is. And it's a really important one in the UK. And it's an industry in transition. You know, we are expanding, the law is changing, we've been hit, well, as we all have with the pandemic, and therefore there will be things moving around, Um, institutions will be under different pressures, and they will need to make decisions about how to do things in a smarter way, Mm -hmm. Um, and I think that's going to make it a very exciting time for marketing and higher education as we go forward. Thank you so much for your time today, Colette. It's been a real pleasure to have you on and to have your insights. Yes, yeah. thank you so much, Colette. Oh, thank you. My pleasure as well. Thank you. If you like what you're hearing, it would mean a lot to us if you'd subscribe. Disrupting the Degree is brought to you by The Brand Education and Carnival Content. <laughs>